All right, buddy, it's time for us to begin tonight. We are in Isaiah chapter 25. If you want to open your Bibles there, Isaiah chapter 25. We are, well, that's not right. Anyway, we are here. All right, so we started way back when, uh, chapters 1 through 6, pre-introduction, the whole world is in trouble, but Judah especially. Chapter 7 through 12, let's introduce Isaiah as a prophet preaching to Judah, establishes authority, establishes audience, and so forth. Chapters 13 through 23, that's where we ended in the previous quarter before we came back. Uh, those are the, the section of the burdens, the words of prophetic doom to various cities and nations and, and empires and so forth in the world. All this is just establishing and repeating the same idea, which is that the world is lost and full of iniquity and deserving of judgment, which is coming through um, God's vengeance. But not deserving of it, but will be the blessed recipients of salvation, but we'll get there. So that's where we are. So here now, where we uh, are now currently, we left off after this, and now last week we started here, chapters 24 through 35. This section is kind of a little um, bridge, kind of an in-betweener kind of section, where we uh, are establishing... Um, the idea of you deserve punishment, but happy days are coming. And this kind of sing-song, back-and-forth kind of way uh, of judgment and promise, of doom and, and glory, of, of despair and happiness, back-and-forth goes as we go through these ten chapters or so. And then there's a little section here, and really, honestly, this right here is some of the coolest, best stuff in the entire Bible. And everything in Isaiah, without you even realizing it when you first start it, is slowly building to this series of chapters, chapters 36 through 39. Everything up to here, on the surface level, is Isaiah saying, the whole world is evil, the whole world is in despair, and then every now and then you'll get this little tease. But the meat of it, the bulk of it, is the whole world is bad and you deserve to be spanked. And then every now and then you get this little tease of God's promise of mercy, of God's promise of salvation, of God's hope of a deliverer to come. But that's just the title of the class, Steak and Sizzle. Everyone talks about Isaiah. Oh, the Messiah is all over Isaiah. Well, he is, but that he's the garnish. He's the seasoning. He's the sizzle. The steak, the meat of the book is about Judah and really the whole sinful world. And it's all going to culminate in this idea of you deserve judgment, but God is merciful in these chapters, 36 to 39. Because it is here where everything that Isaiah had been threatening Judah with comes to a head. When the nation of uh, Assyria invades Jerusalem and seemingly has them ready to be obliterated, ready to completely demolish and take them out, were it not for the faithfulness of really one guy who uh, brings down God's vengeance, not against Judah, uh, though they're so deserving of it, but rather against Assyria to prove that he is a savior as much as he is a punisher. And so the, the whole of the book of Isaiah, we haven't even covered 40 through 66, that's where you really get the, the Jesus stuff. But the whole of Isaiah is this idea that you deserve punishment, in spite of that, God wants to save you. And you get a microcosm of that in 36 through 39. You deserve to be destroyed by Assyria. But because this one guy prayed to me and begged for deliverance, I will deliver. And that's the book in a nutshell. So we're, we're building and building and building to this climax, 36 to 39. Lord willing, I hope this will be how we end the quarter uh, before we come back in, in December and go through to the end of, or to the beginning of the summer quarter next year to finish the book. I hope to finish with this. If not, we'll have to start the quarter 
um, next quarter with that. But that's my goal is to get all the way up to here because here it just it's it's just righteous. All right, all right. Isaiah twenty five. But right now we're in, right now we're in the the build up point. Right now we're just establishing, repeating that same idea. You deserve bad, but good is coming. So chapter twenty four. Last week. Bad, evil, terrible. You're all wicked. You're all terrible. You deserve to be punished. And punishment is coming for those who are evil, which is pretty much the whole world. Now 25. Yes, the world will be punished, but the righteous will be saved. The world will be punished, but the redeemed will be redeemed. The remnant of God will be protected. So 25 verse 1. Let's sing about that. Let's rejoice in that. It's time to celebrate because everything we read in 24 is God will destroy the wicked. That's actually a good thing. That means things are working out. For the righteous. 25 verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. You had these two contrasting promises in the previous chapter. God's vengeance is coming. But though you will suffer, you will not be destroyed. You being God's people. His faithful people. They may suffer, but they won't be destroyed. And so... That stirs up thoughts of thanksgiving. I want to celebrate that. I, I deserved my spanking, but my time out will one day end. So I'm going to be thankful for that. And so that's what this chapter does. This chapter is a song that you break into three parts. The first part, verses 1 through 5, is the source of the people's salvation. That's Jehovah. Then verses 6 through 8, this feast of victory that we all get to enjoy. And then the final four verses, the blessings that come with God's salvation. Because God keeps His promises to punish and to save. It begins, this hymn of praise, with, uh, with uh, Isaiah saying, O Lord, You are my God. Now, how does your Bible say it? You say Lord and God, same thing? What does your say? O Lord, You are my God. O Lord, You are my God. O Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, You are my God, Elohim. O Lord, the one and only one, the, the God over all, You are my ruler. My Elohim. Because of your greatness, I praise you. You have done wonderful things. We have that song. He has done marvelous. He has done marvelous things. We get that right from Isaiah here. We open with praise to his name. I will exalt you. Notice it doesn't start with our wants and needs. This song of prayer doesn't begin with, here's what I need today, God. It begins with, here's how great you are, God. I want to tell you in the opening thoughts of my prayer how special you are. Now, does God know everything? Does God know how special He is? Does God know that I think He's special? Yes, yes, and yes. So why do I need to tell Him He's special? Because God needs me to tell Him He's special. It is in His very nature. He's the only one in all of anything who deserves praise. And God says, I deserve praise. And so if I deserve it, I must receive it. And it is in my nature, built into me by my Creator, for me to extol things, for me to adore things, for me to lift things up. Now that inner idea can be misdirected. People worship celebrities and they worship politicians. They worship themselves. They worship false gods. But the idea is within all of us by our Creator who designed us, who painted us, to want to praise something bigger than us. God is the thing that is bigger than us, the one who is bigger than us. So necessarily and naturally do we lift him up and do we praise him because he's the one who actually deserves it. He's the only one that deserves it. So yeah, start your prayers by telling him what he already knows because here's a spoiler, everything else you say in your prayer is going to be something he already knows too. So start with praise. That's what Isaiah does. Verse 2, For you have made a city into a heap, 
a defense city into a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. So that it is, it's like it's, it was never even built in the first place, essentially. You, you are so awesome and you are so amazing because when you set your sights on destroying a thing, you completely destroy a thing. You take a city and you destroy it. I don't know what city's on his mind. It could be no city or just any city or Sodom and Gomorrah or any other city. But when he sets his eyes on destroying a city, that city can't say, oh, but I have walls. You think God cares about your walls? No, he can destroy your walls. You think you have a big army? He can destroy your army. No matter what you have, God, when he sets his eyes on punishing, will punish. Mind you, this is a praiseworthy song that we're reading here. This is, it is in response to the previous chapter. The previous chapter is that verse in a nutshell. When God sets his eyes on destroying, he will destroy. And we all stand back and say, yay, because we're on his side. Verse 3. Therefore shall the strong people glorify you. The city of terrible nations shall fear you. My Bible says terrible, mighty, powerful nations have long defied him, but they will taste his vengeance. And as a result, they will be, not all of them, but they can have the opportunity to turn and serve the one who so royally spanked them because they would recognize the strength of the one who did it. The strong people will glorify. They may not serve him, but they can at least acknowledge his awesomeness. They may not bow to him, but they can at least acknowledge his power over them is the idea of the verse. Four, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. you got to keep it in the headspace that you're reading poetry here, all right? So it's, and it's, a, it's a prayer, it's poetry, it's not a song the way we compose songs, but keep that in this mind that you're reading, you know, poetic writing. Not that it's like some metaphorical crazy phrasing, but rather it's just the rhythm of it, and the, 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 the writing style of it. So look at what he says, the way he's describing the Lord. And instead, I want you to think about it from the standpoint of a, um, think of yourself as you're reading this as like a traveling um, pagan. You're not an Israelite. You're not a Hebrew. You're not a person who regularly worships Jehovah, which they weren't either at this time, but you know they at least know of him. You're just some guy passing through, and you hear about their God. You know, you know of all these other gods. You have your gods, and you hear about the God of this land. And how is this God described by someone faithful to him? He's, he's described as a God you want to serve. He's described as a God who relieves the poor in his land. He sees the, who, those who are needy, those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden. And his inclination, this great powerful God who could thump armies, wants to stoop down and help those who are in need. He wants to be a protector and a shade from the heat and the elements. He wants to be a shield to those who want to do harm to his people. That's a God you want to serve. It's not just out of scaredy fear. It's out of compassion and love. You want to serve him. He makes himself servable. He makes himself obeyable by his goodness and kindness. So a non-worshipper of God should be inclined to want to worship him. Incidentally, you can't say that about any other false god. Even if Baal was an actual living being, describe to me Baal, and he's not anything that I would want to worship. And the only reason Baal was worshipped was because Baal was taught to be worshipped by other Baal worshippers. And because the practices thereof were so in a worldly way, fun and, you know, delightful. But God, when you describe God and you think about what God offers his people and what history has shown God us for his people is a God you want to worship. And there's no other God like that. Not even imaginary who makes himself so worthy of worship. Verse five, you shall bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with a shadow of a cloud. The, the King James says the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. We'll come back to that in a second. 
But again, this idea of let's describe the goodness of God here. He brings down the noise of strangers. He vanquishes the sounds of an approaching army. Here I am in distress. I'm hunkered down. I'm scared. I'm being outnumbered. The army's marching in. I hear the thump, 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 the rhythmic you know, drumbeat of these marching boots and hooves coming to conquer me. And then I pray to my God and suddenly peaceful silence because he's defeated them. That's a tease that's coming. But that's the idea. This army is approaching. And if I just turn to him, he can silence the noise of those armies. As heat in a dry place, he covers it with the shadow of a cloud. You ever been standing out in the heat in the sun when you're working and then the, a cloud comes in front of the sun and you can adjust your eyes a little bit and you feel a cool breeze? Imagine that <clears throat> times infinity. That's what he offers. And then my Bible says the branch of terrible ones is brought low. Does anybody's Bible say arms or anything else? What do you have? Maybe um, song. Anybody have song of terrible ones or something like that? Song of the ruthless. Song. Yeah, ruthless, terrible. Yeah, it's a translation variation, and that rhymes, so that's the logical answer. Uh, it could be song, could be it could be arms. In other words, it's the the song of the approaching enemy, or it's the strength of the approaching enemy. Same idea. Here's this conquering army marching from one city to the next, defeating, 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 singing their songs of victory with every conquest. They sing their triumph, and then their singing is ended when they meet Jehovah. Because he stops the song. Mind you, this is a song of victory. And he stops theirs because they are evil. Verse 6. Last chapter, among the other things he said, was the wicked with all their revelry, the wicked with all their partying. God will stop all the partying of the wicked. Now parties commence again because we're with God. Verse 6. In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees. Uh, fat things full of marrow, wines of the leaves well refined. This is a celebration. This is a banquet. This is a great feast, a party, because that's what parties looked like back then. They didn't have TV and football games. They just got together and ate, and they celebrated, and they sang, and they played, and they had lots of fun together. Well, that's what he's saying here. You have this great victory. All these armies of the enemy are all around us, and God has vanquished them. Well, what do we do now? We're not scared anymore. We celebrate. We party. We have a great time. And we have the best party that's ever been had with the finest food and the best wine and the best everything. Verse 7. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over the nations. My Bible says destroy. A very harsh word. It just means he will do away with. I, I like that better. I don't know how your Bible translates it, but he will, he will bring to an end. He will let pass away something. So we're on his mountain, all right, which Isaiah has already alluded to and talked about in prior texts. The, the mountain of God's house, the mountain of the Messiah, the place wherein God's people will all reside together. Let's all go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, Isaiah 2. So here in his mountain, we will have this great feast together. We will celebrate together being with him in victory. And in that case, he will cause to end the face of the covering, the veil of despair, in other words. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more crying. He will wipe away the tears. This kind of imagery that we associate with Revelation, that we associate with heaven, Isaiah is introducing to us here in the era of the Messiah. Not the second coming of Jesus and what follows, but the first coming of Jesus and what follows. Those of us who live with God in His kingdom today live in peace live in victory, enjoy a banquet with our Lord, and when we're sad, He wipes away our tears. When we have a veil of sadness over us, He lifts the veil that here had spread over all the nations. Verse 8, 
And that same idea, you just carry it on to the next verse. Here's a verse that if you study 1 Corinthians, you know well. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all their faces. And the rebuke of His people shall He take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken it. Anybody's Bible not say He'll swallow up death in victory. Everybody's got the same thing? Death for all time. Basically the same thing. Margaret, same thing, basically. Death forever. Death forever. Swallow up. Anybody have other than swallow up? Swallow up. All right. Where have we heard this before in the New Testament? Anybody know? First Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 15, you mean? 15. Yeah. First Corinthians 15. That's exactly right. The resurrection chapter. Paul in First Corinthians 15 is dealing with this uh, idea that was circulating among some of the brethren that the idea of a resurrection was was hogwash. It was hocus-pocus nonsense. It can't possibly be. Natural things live. Natural things die. And it would be unnatural for a thing that is dead to be alive again. And Paul says, well, have you met Jesus? Let's start there. And so he starts with Jesus, but he doesn't end with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 is not about the resurrection of Jesus. That's, he just opens with that. He then goes on from there to, and everybody saw him resurrected. Ergo, resurrection exists. And here's what resurrection means for you. He rose, you're in Him, so when they do to you what they did to Him, you'll get what He got. What did they do to Him? They killed Him. What are they going to do to you, Christian? They might kill you. What happened to Him? He shrugged it off and got up again. What will you one day do? Shrug it off and get up again. Yours might be a little longer than three days later, but same end is the point. So he proves through logic and he proves through miraculous power that, that resurrection is not only possible, but it is expected that you should look forward to resurrection. And in the midst of all that, as he's talking about it, he says you have these two kinds of people, these two classes of people. You have those who have already died, and they receive a promise of a resurrection. And you have those who are still alive, who will not die, but the Lord will still return, and they will see the Lord return. Those who have died won't see the Lord return because they're dead. But they will rise to meet the Lord in the air. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, same author, so it's fine. So you have those who are alive who will see the Lord ascend or descend. But I'm not dead, so I don't have to worry about a resurrection. I'll just be changed, is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. But over here, this guy who's dead will have to rise and then be changed. And that's the only difference. The only distinction between the two is one's six feet in the ground. He's got to get up, and then he's got to change. This guy who's already up has got to change to meet the Lord. And he says, and then when that happens, when that process occurs... Then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up. Death is wholly consumed. Death doesn't exist anymore because it's been gulped down and finished away in victory. Victory is the theme of this chapter of Isaiah. Victory is what Paul says resurrection is. Resurrection is victory. You deny resurrection, you deny the victory of Jesus. Because if you take away the resurrection, what, is, what even do you have? You, you, well, you say, oh, I have salvation. Okay, you have salvation. And so you go preach that salvation, and then they kill you, and then you're dead forever? That's it? The whole point of resurrection is that's, what, that's the stamp of approval of your victory. I have salvation, and I know I have salvation, because when you kill me, I will get up. And I will show you what salvation looks like. It is victory. That's what salvation looks like. Victory is right, living. Living. Even if you kill me, it's still living, because I'll get up again. So... Isaiah's prophecy needs not be uh, uh, limited to being about this, just the second coming of Jesus. Because the second coming of Jesus and the way Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 15 
is to apply to those who die in the Lord and have to get resurrected. And so they, when they're resurrected, will have death swallowed up in victory. But the rest of us living today right here, let's say Jesus comes back today in five minutes. Okay, presumably nobody's going to die in the next five minutes, which means we're all alive when the Lord returns. Right now, as I speak, all of you who are Christians have death swallowed up in victory. You haven't experienced it yet, but you have it. You have victory over death. Victory over death is not a thing you're looking forward to. It's a thing you currently possess. So that if they do kill you, you, by possessing it, will get up again if they kill you. You got me? I have victory over death. And so if you don't like me preaching the gospel and you put a bullet in my head, then when Jesus returns, I having victory over death will prove it by getting up. Okay? And if I'm already dead, I died having victory over death. And I will prove that I have victory over death by getting up. Victory over death is not just exclusive to the second coming of Jesus. Put it in the future. Think about it later. Victory over death is what you enjoy now. That's your victory. You, you are saved. Saved is the victory. So you have victory over death. You possess it currently, presently. That's Isaiah is talking about the era of the Messiah here. Isaiah never talks about the second coming of Jesus. Find me a text. Maybe I've forgotten one. Nowhere in his text, as far as I am aware, does he talk about the second coming. He's all about the first coming of Jesus. And he's all about the era of the Messiah. The period in which we currently live. Between Jesus coming and Jesus coming again. That's his era. His period. His, his la these last days. All right? In those last days, in that era of the Messiah, among all the other blessings he gives you, is you get to possess victory over death. You have it. How do you know you have it? Because you know if they kill you, you will rise. So that's what Isaiah is talking about. Among all these other blessings that he gives you, as he says, we get death swallowed up in victory. We, we go up to his proverbial mountaintop. We get to feast with him and we get to receive all his blessings. And among those blessings he gives you is the assurance, the get out of jail free card, the get out of the grave free card that says, because you're mine, even if they kill you, you'll shrug it off. I'll prove it because I'll do it first, he says. And then he shrugs it off. So that's the idea. Don't, don't limit 1 Corinthians 15 and his reference back to Isaiah here to being just about the second coming and what happens. The only reason Paul referenced it there was because he was dealing with people who had already died. And he was saying, they'll have the death swallow up in victory even though they're in the grave. So Isaiah wasn't limiting it to that. Paul did for his point. Isaiah's point is, we all have it. That's one of the blessings of being a people of the Messiah. Matthew? Yes. Yes, ma'am. How do you think that applies to the grief class that we just well, it's about processing the reality of death and the, the, the pain that is temporary and short-lived. I mean, in the text, go back to the verse, because we haven't read it in a few minutes. Isaiah, um, I have many pages on this one verse. 25 verse uh, 8. 25 verse 8. He will swallow up death in victory. That's the phrase that we know, because that's what comes from 1 Corinthians. But that's only one of three things that he says in this verse. Look at the very next thing that he says. It's another phrase that we know very well. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from their faces. Now, what's the song that we always sing about crying in heaven and so no forth? Tears, no, tears. no tears in heaven. Okay. But what does your Bible say? It says he will wipe away your tears. And it's not even in heaven. It's right now. So it doesn't mean you don't cry. It doesn't mean it's wrong to cry or that you shouldn't cry. When your grandmother dies, you should cry. 
When your brother dies, when your child dies, when your mother dies, when whoever dies, you should cry. Because you're not with that person anymore. You don't get to talk with them anymore. You don't get to share happy memories with them. You have regrets over mistakes, etc., etc., etc. You grieve. We need help working through the grieving process, and some classes like that are very helpful to work through that grieving process. But at the end of that grieving process for the Christian is the assurance, especially if that one who died was a Christian themselves, that they died in heavy quotation marks, they fell asleep and were put in the ground knowing they had victory over death, waiting to be cashed in at the second coming, at the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the archangel. So, yeah, grieve. But you grieve with the, the confidence, you grieve with the assurance that parting is such sweet sorrow because you'll see them again. So that's the second thing he says. Death swallowed victory. Wipe away the tears from their faces. And, he says, the rebuke of the people he'll take away from all the earth. I'm going to be doling out punishment, 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 punishment. But you, no punishment. Why don't I get punishment? Because he doesn't say it yet. It's because I've been saved from punishment. He's getting there. 25 verse 9. And it shall be said in that day, what's that day? It's the day when we all go up to the mountain of the Lord. It's the day when we all feast with the Lord. It's the day when death is swallowed up. It's the day when all tears are wiped away. It's the day when we're saved from our, judge, our, our punishment. This is not the second coming. This is Christianity. All right? That's Isaiah's point. In that day, we will get to say to everybody, look, there's our God. We've waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord, we'll say, like Vanna White. This is the Lord, right here. The one we've been waiting for. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is not a second coming text. Nowhere in Isaiah is. This is a first coming text. This is us saying, look, here's our Messiah. Look, everybody, here He is. That's our message right now. That's what we say to the world. Don't we? We say, you, stranger friend, look, here's our Messiah. Here's our Lord. Here's His truth, here's His message, here's His cross, here's His gospel. He has saved us. We've been waiting for Him. And now He has come. So come be glad with us. Come eat with us. Come have your tears wiped away. Come swallow up death with victory. Matthew, yes, Do you think Isaiah had any idea about the second coming? I don't, no, I don't think so. Because Isaiah was given what he was given. And I don't think he was given anything about it. And so I don't think that would be even on his radar. If anything, if you ask Isaiah while he's writing all this, what's on your mind right now? He's thinking, Assyria is getting bigger and stronger and more dangerous, and I haven't written about it in several pages, but God keeps having me write about all this other stuff about mountains and feasts. That's probably what Isaiah would be doing. But he's not thinking so far ahead about the Savior will come and then die and then come back again. The most you get from him is the Savior comes and dies. And how much he even understood about that uh, is up for debate. The New Testament says those Old Testament prophets talked about it without understanding what they were writing. So no, I don't think the second coming was on his mind at all. But even if it was, even if he knew about it, he wasn't writing about it. 25.10 For in the, This is still us talking. This is the people saying, look, here's our God. And we continue, 20, verse 10. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as the straw is trodden down for the dunghill. Suddenly Moab gets a random shot. Why Moab? I think it's just representational of God's enemies. Here's a nation that's perpetual thorning in the side of Israel, a long-standing enemy, one of the very kinds of nations that will be smacked down. So it's a contrast to the victory we have. We get to go up in the mountain. We get to rest in the hollow of God's hand. And the enemies of God, they're smacked down. They're, they're like uh, straw on the floor of the barn. 
trampled down by the hooves of the animals into the manure. That's what happens to God's enemies. But we get the victory. 11. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them like a swimmer that spreads forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with all the spoils of their hands. Moab, but representational of any enemy. They might try to escape, but God is like a swimmer. You ever see a swimmer? They have long arms. God has long arms like a swimmer who can scoop them up, find them in order to punish them. He'll spread forth his hands out to bring down their pride and to spoil them. Spoil here, uh, that's what they are trying to do and God will just destroy it. In this case, the word is describing people who like lie in wait to pounce. So these enemies of God think, we're going to hide, we're going to ride this out, and then when God leaves us alone, then we'll come back and attack. No. God, God has a long memory. He has a long arm. You're not going to ride it out. He's going to find you. He's going to get you. Verse 12. Verse 12. And the fortress of the high fort of your wall shall he bring down. Shall he lay them low, and shall he bring them to the ground? He shall bring them down even to the dust. So they try to wait it out. Isaiah says, no. They try to run to shelter. Isaiah says, no. You're going to go to your fortress with your high walls. He's going to bring them down. You're going to hunker down. He's going to knock them low. You're going to dig into the ground. He's going to bring you to the dust. No matter where you go, what you do, how you hide, he will find you. He will get you. He will kill you. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. It's in the song. It's what's going to happen. And that's how the chapter ends. It seems very negative, but it's only negative because if you're the enemy of God, this is a song of celebration. This is a song of victory. I'm God's people. They are the ones who are going to get knocked down. I deserve to get knocked down, but I'm going to be saved. If you're not, you're in trouble. Now, let's just keep going because we have 17 more minutes. Verse 20, uh, 26, verse 1. In that day, in what day? Well, he just got through telling you this, there's no chapter breaks when Isaiah wrote it. In the day when we all go up to his mountain, when we all feast, when our tears are wiped away, when we have... Death swallowed up in that day. Shall this song be sung in the land of Judah? So here's another song. This is a song of celebration of the victory we have. And the song goes like this. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Bul bulwarks. Um, we have a strong city. You have a city, previous chapter, that will be destroyed. We have a city that you can throw everything at and it can't be knocked down. We have a city whose walls and fortifications are as tall as God's arms are long. You cannot get in unless you're invited. You cannot bulldoze it. You cannot steamroll it. You cannot lay siege to it. Relevant phraseology in an era where Assyria and soon-to-be Babylon is easily conquering and taking over, laying siege to and defeating city after city after city after city. So it's a great comforting thing to hear God has a city and you cannot defeat it. Its walls and its fortifications are impenetrable. And then you get to verse 2 and God says, I have a city. Open the gates. And you think, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Look at our walls if we're opening the front door. We have armies that are marching against the city. You tell me the walls are impenetrable. Great. Now you say, open the front door. Yes, because this city is invitational. Anybody can come in. That Assyrian out there that's trying to kill and destroy this city, he's invited into this city. The only way he's going to get in is if he becomes godly, is if he obeys the gospel. But if he wants to, I don't care what he did in the past. I'm going to make him brand new anyway. So what, you think you're worthy of it, Judean? You're just as wicked. That's, what, that's why this book opens the way it does. Chapters 1 through 6 is the legal case against Judah. 
as if they're in court and the lawyer, which is God, and also the judge and also the executioner, is laying down the case against them for all their many sins. They're not worthy of being in this city. So they certainly don't get to say, don't let the Assyrian in, don't let the Babylonian in, don't let that guy or those people. No. Open the gates. Anyone can come in. Why? I want the righteous nation to enter. Who is the righteous nation? Is it the nation of Judah as it's known in 700 B.C.? No, that nation of Judah is not going into God's city. They're going into Babylon's city. They're going to be taken to Babylon captivity. They're going to be punished. They're going to be whittled down to a core faithful remnant. That faithful remnant is going to go back home to Jerusalem, which is still not the city. And slowly they're going to continue to exist, be in and out of various empires, control, until the real Messiah comes and establishes his city, which is not of this world. And those walls are high. Those fortifications are impenetrable. And those gates are open wide. For anyone to enter and become part of his righteous nation, his right-doing people. Who are they? Who is the right-doing people? The righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter therein. My Bible says keeps the truth. What does yours say? Keep the faith even better. That's the phrase we use anyway. Those who keep the faith. Those who endure. Those who remain steadfast. Those who hang on to what is right will get to enter in. And those who do, what do they get? Verse 3. You will keep him, the entering in one, in perfect peace, the King James says, the one whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. My Bible says perfect peace. What does your Bible say? No. Same thing. Anybody, who knows the Hebrew word for peace? It's also the greeting when you come into someone's house. Shalom. So the word for perfect peace is shalom, shalom. You say it twice. They don't, they don't have a word for a whole lot of. They just, say, they just say the word twice to emphasize it. So you will keep him in a peace that, well, you might even say, passes understanding. You will keep him in that state of perpetual contentment and satisfaction and ah, at easeness because his mind is, the King James says, stayed on you. His mind is leaned on to for support. Notice, it's not his body. It's not his, his possessions. I will have peace because my mind. Does your Bible say mind? Yes. Is, is leaning on you for support. Everything leading up to this chapter and this, even this verse has been about you have these physical armies that are bringing physical danger. If you run to the Lord and His protection, then God will protect you from these physical armies. But now, as you're starting to get into what does it look like to be protected by God, it's not about the physical. It's about, if I say the mental, that, that doesn't even do it all the way justice. But it's not about the physical. It's about the emotional. It's about the spiritual. It's about the psychological. It's about putting yourself in the headspace of trusting that God's on your side. So this enemy over here, he may not necessarily, as he will do, send an angel to smack them down. He may let the army trample over you, and you may die. But what is death? It's swallowed up in victory. And so once you have that understanding that you may end this body, but the inner man is renewed day by day, once you have that mentality, you have what's called shalom, shalom. You have this peace of, and, and contentment that comes with knowing that it will be okay. Verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Jehovah. In the Lord Jehovah. Is that what yours has, those two words? In the Lord God. Is, is anybody's Bible had like all capitalized, things like that? Yeah. Yes. Trust in the Lord. That's Jehovah. That's Yahweh. In the Lord Jehovah. It's, if you were to write it. So you've seen Jehovah, Y-H-W-H, right? Uh, 
But this is YH, YHWH, in the Lord Jehovah. Trust in the one and only, one and only one is basically the best way to translate it. I mean, there is no, like if you, if you were to ask God and he was actually going to answer you and you said, God, what does Jehovah mean? How do you translate that? He would say, that's, that's me. He would say, I am Jehovah. Yeah, but what, but what does the word mean? I am. You know, but there's another Hebrew word for I and there's a word for am and he is and they are and I am. That's not what this is though. So what does this mean? He would just say, it's just, it just means me. It just means what I am. It's this unique word. It has no vowels. It's just this unique word that means nothing like nothing else because that's what God is. He is like nothing else. But this is yeah, Yahweh. Sounds like clean up. This is the one and the one and only one. This is God, God, and the only God. Just to emphasize, emphasize, emphasize it. I saw like the goose on Charlotte's whip. There is none greater. That's a deep cut for anyone who's had children. There's none greater, there's none wiser, there's none stronger, that's just God. That's who he's talking about. And it is in him that they find, the King James says, everlasting support. What's your Bible say there at the end of the verse? Everlasting rock. Yes, exactly. A bedrock on which you can build a sure foundation. Build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said. Verse 5. For he brings down them that dwell on high. The lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low even to the ground. He brings it even to the dust. There's a poetic kind of rhythm. This is a song that we're in the middle of. So he looks around and he finds those who arrogantly prop themselves up and those are the ones he chops down at the legs. He brings them lofty down low. He lays them low all the way to the ground, humbles them, humiliates, same word, them. In fact, you can even translate that he, he sinks them. Um, oh, I forgot how it goes in the song. All our something are shifting sands. <laughs> There's a line in one of the songs we sing all the time. But that's the idea. It's like quicksand. You're going to go down, sink all the way down, even to the dust. <coughs> Verse 6. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Who are the poor and who are the needy in this context? That's God's people. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, not the war makers. Blessed are the people who are oppressed, not the oppressors. These are God's people. If you find someone who's using the other side of that coin, it's a lot harder to be God's people because it's really difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus establishes. So it's the poor and the needy who typify the person of God. Poor, financially speaking, is a relative term, so let's not run away with that metaphor. But as I say, it typifies the person of God. And so here they are. They're the ones who get to celebrate. They're the ones who get to have what victory looks like. What does victory look like to the Judean reading this in 700 B.C.? A victorious army is marching through a defeated street. They're, they're trampling down the rubble. They're, they're stepping over dead bodies. That kind of imagery is stark. It's grotesque. But that's the image of a victory. And that's what Isaiah uses to show the victory of Jesus. But who are the soldiers of this army that get to trample over the remains of this defeated city? The poor and the needy, the downtrodden, the oppressed. Not the soldier, not the warrior, not some great Goliath. It's the weak and the small who would never win a battle because they're not the warrior here. Who is the fighter? Who is the champion? Who is the victor? God. Everyone else is just on his team or not on his team. You, God is not on your side. Okay? God is not on your side. You must be on God's side. God just is says it right there in the name. God just is. you got to be with God or you're going to be against God. And if you're with God, then you get to stand in the afterglow of his victories. If you're against God, you're the dirt that gets trampled on. Verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness. 
you most upright does weigh the path of the just. Um, well, the, the verse speaks for itself. The way of the just, the path the just takes is the right way to go. But before you start to think, I'm going the right way because I'm right, he quickly interjects and he says, God, the most upright, the one whose every step is automatically the right way. He defines what is right. Wherever he goes is what is right. Then he is the one who weighs the path of the just. He determines which way to go. We're just following in his wake. Verse 8. Yea, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, have we waited for you. The desire of our soul is to your name and to the remembrance of you. God's people enter into victory. Enter into rest. Enter into the spoils of the aftermath of a victory. Where there will be celebration. Where there will be eating. Where there will be uh, you know, trampling over your enemies. All these metaphors that we've seen, they're kind of all coming to a head here. And now we're kind of all just sitting around a campfire, relaxing after a, a hard-fought victory that we didn't weigh, wag a single sword in. We're just celebrating the victory that God's allowed us to enjoy, and we're just talking around a campfire, just talking about how great our general is, who did all the fighting. He's not up on a hill watching the fight. He's in the thick of it, doing all the fighting. And you'll see how bloodstained he is, when we get to chapter 40. But we're not there yet. So that's just what this is in verse 8. It's just the praise to Him. It's, it's all about you. We've waited for you. you. The desire of our soul is to you. You're our Messiah. You're our champion. You're our chosen Savior. And you're the one we've been hoping would come save us. And you have. Verse 9. We still have five minutes. With my soul have I desired you in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world... We'll learn righteousness. This You can look at this, or I want you to think about this, as something that would be read in the, the exile of Babylon. It's, it's still 150 or so years away, more or less. Um, but Isaiah's words are going to be taken. They're going to be read. They're going to be studied. They're going to be applied. Much penance will come uh, from the faithful. So read this from the perspective of the one who is in a foreign land where you're... Um, a subject, subjugated to a foreign enemy who speaks a foreign language. They have a foreign culture. It's everything a Jew hates. Because Jews hate anything that's not Jewish. They hate, uh, they hate every Gentile. They hate every foreign cu culture, every foreign way. It's all beneath them and below them. And now they've been ripped out of their promised land. They've been put in this Gentile land, this Chaldean land, where they don't speak the language and they don't like the people and they don't like the customs. They don't like anything. They're in the dark. And they're just clinging to this faint, glimmering little hope that's way off in the distance of a Messiah promised to them. They don't understand fully how it's all going to come about, if he's going to be some great warrior to come in and drive them away, or if they'll get to go home and he'll be there waiting for them. They don't understand it. But they just cling to this hope. And they read through Isaiah these messages of the hope is on the horizon. I got it, Bill. The hope is coming. The hope is on the way. With my soul I've desired for you in the night. With my spirit, I will seek you early as soon as I wake up in the morning. This is all they're thinking about. It's when is my Messiah going to come? When is salvation going to be here? They think it's salvation from Babylon. They're going to get that from Cyrus. That's not even a big deal. It's the real salvation that Isaiah is concerned with. We'll pick it up there, Isaiah 26, verse 10, next week. Thank you all very much. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive, giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can 
if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.